Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you're here to join us in a study of God's Word. Good morning, everyone. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Ryan Kramer, and I have the great privilege of serving here as an elder and teaching pastor at Montrose Bible Church. And this morning, we're continuing our study through the book of Philippians. Last week, we started a three-part series on verses 17 through 30 of chapter 2. And in this text, we saw the Apostle Paul lifting up three exemplary models of the Christian faith to show to the Philippians and hopefully place within their midst. We saw the first example last week in the person of Paul, and this week we look to the example of Timothy. Verses 19 through 24 of our text read, if you're not there, turn with me, Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 24. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will generally be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. May God bless the reading of his word. And as we discussed last week, Paul is eager to hear of the Philippians' condition, but he cannot go himself because he's in chains. So he's hoping to send Timothy. And then he then qualifies Timothy for several different reasons. Paul has much to say of his son of this of his son in the faith. He says, I have no one else of kindred spirit. No one else who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. No one else who is seeking after the interests of Christ, for they are all too busy seeking after their own interests. And we can be sure that the Apostle Paul would have continued on and on about this faithful saint. But there was no further need to qualify this man in the eyes of the Philippians, because as we can see in Timothy's so-called recommendation letter, they already knew him. They had seen Timothy in action, witnessed him suffering and serving for the cause of Christ. They had heard him teach, and they knew of his proven worth. They were firsthand witnesses that Timothy did indeed serve with Paul in the furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. They knew Timothy well, and it would be no stretch of the imagination to say that this church would have had a fondness and a love for him. So why does Paul take the time to spell out the things that he does? It's not because he's afraid that they might reject Timothy if he is sent, or because they need to be ensured that he is indeed a trustworthy representative of Paul. No, Paul sets Timothy in front of them as one more example that they can look to while they're suffering persecution. Paul recognizes that the Philippian church's neighbors, government, old friends, own family— and the spiritual forces of wickedness and the heavenly places were seeking to crush, dismantle, and destroy this church. And the Apostle Paul, better than almost anyone else, 
fully understood what these pressures could do to an individual and a church. So he urges them to not let it break them, divide them, or set them against each other, but rather let it drive them even closer together. Yet he knows that the only way for this model to work is for each and every member to be selflessly thinking of the person by their side, retreating inwardly, putting up walls, blocking out brothers and sisters in the faith, and only looking to one's own well-being would tear the church apart at the seams, and there would be no church left. So he puts in front of them example after example of humility being put on display in hopes that they would model it in their own lives as well. He first starts with the example of Jesus, and then Paul moves on to himself, and now he has arrived at Timothy. And as we'll see this morning, we have a grand example in this young man. And Paul directs our attention to three aspects of Timothy's life. First, we see Paul lifting up Timothy as an exemplary model of humble Christian service because Timothy, like Paul, was genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. It's not a passive interest that he has. Timothy's concern isn't only an effect between the normal business hours of 9 to 5, closed on weekends and all major holidays. No, the concern that Timothy has is a deep concern, a genuine concern for others. He cares, he worries, he's anxious, he even stresses over the welfare of others. And this is the same type of concern that each of us are to have for one another and our fellow brothers and sisters in the faith. And upon hearing this command, it's far too easy to nod our heads and conclude, yeah, I already got that one covered. I crossed out my weekly act of benevolence, so let's wrap up this point and move on to the next one. And it's so easy for us to do this because we've heard this instruction time and time again throughout Scripture. For any of those that have spent any time in the church or their Bible, it shouldn't be a new revelation that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves and to think of others. But yeah, I think it's safe to conclude that we see it time and time again throughout Scripture, not because we need to hear it one more time, but because we need to actually live it out. Once again, far too often this is a checklist item. We know that we're called to do this, so we seek to find the easiest most convenient option, and check it off the list so we can get back to our day. And this is not the type of attitude that Jesus nor the Apostle Paul are pointing to. Our concern for others should be genuine, real, and authentic, one that causes you to be worried, anxious, or even stressed over another, not because you've forgotten that God's in control and you see yourself as the only means of solving that person's problem, No, but because you're actually loving your neighbor as yourself. Because we're so deeply rooted in their shoes that their pain has become our pain. Their difficulties are difficulties. Their heartache are heartache. And consider the example that Paul sets for us in Acts chapter 20. As he reminds the elders of the church in Ephesus what it costs him to begin and protect their church. Acts 20 verse 31, Paul says... Remember that night and day for a period of three years, I, Paul, did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. And that's putting others first, friends. 
for three years thinking of, praying for, correcting, teaching, and rebuking night and day with tears. And Paul concludes this address to the elders in Ephesus by saying in verse 35, In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner you must help the weak and remember the word of the Lord Jesus that he himself said is more blessed to give than to receive. And this is but one example of how Paul expressed his genuine concern for others. But, excuse me, but what of Timothy? Well, if we collect all that we know of him, it paints quite the compelling picture of his concern for others and the things of Christ. On Paul's first missionary journey, one of his stops was in the cities of Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And Timothy and his mother were natives of Lystra, and whether it was during Paul's first missionary journey there or because of his stay there, Timothy and his mother Eunice became believers. And by the time time Paul makes his way back to Lystra on his second missionary journey, Timothy has grown in his faith and is well spoken of by the brethren. Paul wants Timothy to accompany him on his travels, and Timothy agrees to go. And may I remind you that this isn't an invitation to go on a week-long, all-inclusive missionary getaway. No, what Paul's asking Timothy to engage on are the same journeys that he speaks of in 2 Corinthians, where he's in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, from the Gentiles, danger in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, and danger from false brothers. He says there will be toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Paul's saying, it'll be a real good time, Timothy. When it comes to danger, we'll be facing it from just about everything. But don't worry, the accommodations will make up for the danger. Sleeping arrangements are all figured out. There's actually no need for them because you won't get any sleep. And on the off chance that you do, it'll be in the cold and exposure. But wait, there's more. Haven't told you about the food. Once again, we'll be taking the minimalist approach. There'll definitely be food sometimes, but more often than not, you'll be without food and hunger and thirst. And if that doesn't deter one from signing on the dotted line, I don't know what else would. But Paul still isn't done. Before Timothy gets to encounter all of these dangers, Paul has a big ask of him before they even leave Lystra. And this ask isn't mandatory or required by Scripture. In fact, the previous chapter of Acts spells out how Paul, Barnabas, and some others had just traveled to Jerusalem to straighten this whole ordeal out. The Council of Jerusalem ruled on the side of Paul and the apostles, stating that one is saved by faith alone in Christ Jesus. And it's not necessary for the males to be circumcised according to the law of Moses in order to be saved. Paul had just fought against this, but now he asked Timothy, as an adult, to have this done. Not because it's necessary, but because he knew that on their journeys, they would be witnessing to both Jews and Gentiles, and he was concerned that Timothy, being half Jewish and half Greek, might become an obstacle to sharing the gospel with the Jews if he remained uncircumcised. Timothy was free to do what he wanted, but he chose to go through with it so that more might have the chance of hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And decisions like this one and leaving your life behind to share the gospel with others are not born out of a deep concern for yourself, but rather a concern for others. Nobody arrives at such a destination while seeking their own interests, but only if they're first seeking after the interests of Christ Jesus. And this is the second lesson that we can learn from Timothy. Take another look at this morning's text. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. And what we can see is that while everyone else is seeking after their own interests, he's seeking after the interests of Christ Jesus. This is what lies at the core of this young man. (coughs) Excuse me. This is what lies at the core of this young man and drives him forward into a life of service. And Paul knows this about Timothy, so he lifts him up as an example to set before the Philippians. For right now, he does so only on paper, but he's hopeful that Timothy will be able to be in their midst shortly. But in either case, whether in person or through a letter, Paul's hope is that these believers would model themselves after Timothy. His intention is that they would look to Timothy and ask themselves, Am I, like Timothy, seeking after Christ's interests, or am I seeking after my own? In God's word this morning, which was breathed out by his Spirit, implores each of us to ask ourselves these same questions. Excuse me. I'm sick like probably the rest of you. So, apologies. And God's word this morning, which was breathed out by his spirit, implores each of us to ask ourselves these same questions. Are you seeking your own interests, or are you seeking after the interests of Christ? And hopefully as we study this text... We can each provide honest answers to these vital questions. So, what does it look like to seek after? What does it look like to seek after our own interests? And more importantly, how do we know if we are doing so? And if we remember back a few months ago to the church's study in the book of Matthew, we have a very good demonstration of what it means to seek after one's own interests. In chapter 22 of Matthew, we see Jesus explaining to the religious leaders of his day what the kingdom of heaven is like. And in this parable, he compares the chief priests and the elders to guests that were invited to a wedding feast that a king held for his son. The guests received the invitations beforehand, and when the feast was ready, the king's slaves went out to announce that everything was prepared, but the guests were unwilling to come. Graciously, the king invited them for a third and final time, but they paid no attention, 
But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated and killed them. And if we remember the rest of this parable, we know that the king was enraged. And he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. And he sent his slaves out to invite new guests to his feast so that the hall would be Either way, the king was going to have the place packed in honor of his son. But what was it that kept this first group from entering into the king's wedding feast? The answer, they were too preoccupied with themselves. One went to his own farm, the other to his business, and the rest seized and killed the king's slaves. They had too much going on and no time to worry about this silly business of the kingdom of heaven. They had more important things to attend to, like their sheep, their cows, and their farms. Sorry, king, I'd love to go, but someone has to look after my business and manage my profits. So sadly, I won't be able to make it. And you know what, king? I'm sick of your slaves nagging and convicting me that I'm in the wrong. So I'm going to kill them and shut them up so I can get back to living for myself. And this is but one sad example from Scripture of what it looks like to seek after our own interests. It's just as it sounds, you're pursuing after your own things. And this is what it looks like, but how do we know if this is where we're at? And thankfully, Scripture gives us examples of how to do this. We see in the Psalms, the psalmist asking God to search, try, and test their heart in order that he might reveal any iniquity within them and cleanse them from it. We see in the prophets the instruction to examine our hearts. Lamentations 3.40 says, Let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. And 2 Corinthians 13.5, we're given instructions on a self-test we are to take. It says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. And just as a business will leave a money trail as to what things they deem most important, such as advertising, human resources, marketing, or physical assets, so too will our lives reveal what's most important to us. And you're not going to find the answer by looking to an event that you take part in once a year or even once a week. No, you must look closer. What is your chief concern when it comes to each of your days? As we know, there's a million different things that each of us can worry about. But which one rises to the top? Things like financial security, physical safety, retirement planning, and further education for your children are all well and good but they should not be your primary concern. We convince ourselves that all these physical needs and wants must be met first, and then that after we can give our leftovers to God. But this mindset has it backwards. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see him addressing this very thing 
in his Sermon on the Mount. And turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Once again, Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Jesus says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And we won't find it spelt out in Scripture any clearer than right here, friends. Stop worrying about the things that the world and the unbelievers are worrying about where their food, water, and clothing are coming from. God will take care of and provide you with these things. Stop seeking after them, and instead, seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness. Then all these things that are necessary for living, food, water, and clothing, will be added to you. And as we look to the model of Timothy, can we ask ourselves, like Timothy, does this describe us? Are you seeking God's kingdom first, or are you seeking after your own? When you examine what you spend your days, time, energy, money, talent, and even prayers on, what is it that it reveals? Hopefully your self-audit shows that you have prioritized Christ's interests above your own, just as Timothy did. And if you honestly can't find your way to an answer, then jot down the reference Psalm 139, read through it for yourself, And ask the Lord, as David does in verses 23 through 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. Ask this in earnest, and God will reveal to you where you are at. And if it turns out you've drifted slightly off course, or even need a major realignment, you can look to the examples of past believers like Timothy, to write the course. And as we've seen in this morning's text, Timothy is able to get right what so many others have gotten wrong. As the majority of people grind their way through life and their black and white landscape pursuing their own interests, Timothy's wholehearted pursuit of Christ has left them shining forth in neon colors for all to see. His life is no longer his own, 
So he no longer seeks after his own things. His life belongs to Christ, so he seeks after the things of Christ. And this should be our pursuit as well, to seek after the things of Christ. But in order to do so, we first need to know what Christ is interested in, and then be sure to keep them on the forefront of our mind. For if we do not, we'll find ourselves drifting backwards and becoming consumed once again with our own interests, rather than Christ. <clears throat> so, what is it that Jesus is interested in? Fortunately, we have four gospel accounts that answer these questions. Sadly, we don't have the time to camp out here all day and read through all four of them to figure out what it is that Jesus is interested in. But if one takes the time to read through the gospels and see the introduction of each gospel writer's narrative of Jesus... It will clearly reveal what Christ is interested in. <clears throat> His primary concern was not this earthly kingdom, but the kingdom of heaven. And this is what Christ is interested in, and his priorities have not changed. And what we see in this morning's text is Paul commending Timothy for aligning himself with Christ's interest. Timothy is no longer looking to his own interests or his own kingdom but rather to Jesus Christ and Jesus' Father's kingdom. Paul knows that Timothy is on the right path, so he writes to the Philippians and says, Look to Timothy because he has got this in the right order. But what of us? Could Paul say the same thing about us? Can you honestly say of yourself that you are seeking first the kingdom of God, or have you, like so many others, got this backwards? And no one else can answer this question for you. And scripture would call each one of us to ask God to search our hearts, to search our minds, to test, try, and reveal to us where we're at. Ask God to show you this and perform that self-audit so that you might see what direction the paper trail of your life points to. Will it be Christ's interests or your own? <clears throat> And as we've already seen this morning, Timothy is genuinely concerned for others. He's able to put on this mindset because he's no longer seeking after his own things, but the things of Christ. And as we continue along in our text, will you be able to see one of the reasons why Timothy is no longer consumed with his own interests, but rather Christ? And what we see in the text, Timothy understands this because he properly understands the new role that he has as a follower of Jesus. Timothy understood what it was that he was signing up for when he confessed with his mouth Jesus as Lord and believed in his heart that God raised him from the dead. He recognizes Jesus' lordship over him. He acknowledges that Christ is now his owner, and he lays down his life at the feet of his new master. For this is what it means to confess Jesus Christ as his Lord, as his kurios. It means that Jesus is now the master and he the slave. And this is what we see in verse 22. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. He served with Paul from the Greek he duyuo in the furtherance of the gospel. 
And this verb finds its root from the word doulos, which is a noun that's used more than a hundred times throughout the New Testament. Translated into servant or bondservant 24 times, and slave or bondslave 102 times. Timothy realized what it was he was confessing about Christ and properly stepped into his new role. As Christ's bondservant, he served, or better yet, as Jesus' bond slave, he slaved. And sadly, for many in modern Christendom, this may come as a shocker that we're called to serve and to slave for Christ. Oftentimes people say, Christ hasn't called me to serve. He saved me so that I can rest. And so many expect and proclaim that the rest we can find in Christ is the same type that you experience on a vacation in Hawaii, the kind where you plop yourself in a chair, kick your feet up, and do absolutely nothing. And while Jesus undeniably does provide rest for those that are in him, it's not the same type where you lie back and crack open a cold drink. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus speaks of both the rest and the service that those belong to him will experience. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All those that come to Jesus who are tired of serving sin, their old master, all those who realize that their own sin and the guilt from it is wearisome and heavy, will find rest in the Lord. Yet Jesus doesn't tell them to sit down and then coast their way into his kingdom. No, his next words are, take my yoke upon you. And some will say, I don't know about this, Jesus. You promised me rest, yet you're telling me to yoke myself up like I'm a servant or an ox and get to work? It doesn't sound like rest. And Jesus says, hold on, let me finish. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Nowhere from the words of Jesus or from the biblical example of his followers will we find a promise of never-ending rest for our feet, hands, back, or necks while we are here on this earth. But what we do see is something so much greater. Jesus provides a rest for our souls. But first, we must be willing to come to Christ and put his yoke upon our shoulders. And when we do, we'll learn that he is gentle and humble at heart. We can know this for ourselves and then cry out to him in praise and adoration because that old yoke and its burden have been lifted off of our shoulders and the new one placed there by Christ is easy and light. And Paul and Timothy got to experience this for themselves. As Paul proclaims in the opening lines of his letter, both he and Timothy are bondservants of Christ Jesus. And as such, they've surrendered their lives to the Christ who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Christ does not ask his followers to walk down a path that he was unwilling to walk down himself. He submitted to his father's will and took the form of a bondservant, and now he demands that his followers 
do the same. That they submit to him and his authority. Paul and Timothy, recognizing their new identities as servants and slaves of Christ, are willing to serve and slave for their new master. And as we look to their example, you might be saying to yourself, man, I don't know about this whole thing. What Paul and Timothy are modeling, it sounds like a lot of work. And you'd be right, it is work. You say, I'm on the fence because that sounds like a lot of sacrifice. And again, you're right, it is sacrifice. So then you jump to the conclusion that it's not worth it. And to this, you're wrong, so very wrong. For while there is work, sacrifice, pain, and even suffering for those that are in Christ, there's also rejoicing, peace, and rest that will never end. And if you could speak to these two men now, two millennia removed, and ask them if their momentary and light affliction was all worth it, they'd respond by saying, yes, it was. Everything we had to go through was worth it. The sacrifice, the concern, the laying aside of our own interests in order to pick up Christ, the serving and the slaving were all worth it. And you say, I don't understand. How is it all worth it? And I know how they would respond, and I hope you can respond with the same words. 2 Corinthians four sixteen through 17 Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. You ask, was it worth it? The answer is yes. It was all worth it. Everything is worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and just thank you once again for these examples you've put in your word, Lord, that we can look to and be reminded of how we are to live for you, to humble ourselves before you and put others first. Thank you for the ultimate example of your son and that we could follow after him. We thank you this morning that we can look to the example of Timothy, who put others before himself, who sought after your own kingdom, uh, your kingdom, Lord, rather than his own. And also, he was willing to serve and slave for you, knowing that uh, what he was confessing was that you are now Lord over his life, you're the master, and he was content to go about whatever you would have him to do. We pray that you work in each of our lives so that we'd be willing to do the same. Uh, so you say, go, Lord, we would go. Wherever you call us, we would be willing to pick up our feet and walk in that direction, knowing all the while that you're there with us the whole time. Thank you for all that you do and who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose, come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue.